Bible, go to Hebrews. Hebrews. So we are actually going to cover more than a verse and a half today. Um, so some of you that may be exciting, some of you may be disappointing. So I'm not sure where you fall on the, the spectrum there. Okay, so as we get into this, in all seriousness, I am trying to make it um, less lecture and a little more dialogical because my goal here isn't just to teach through Hebrews, but to teach through reading Hebrews, if that makes sense. I want, I want to equip you to use good Bible study practice. Now, some of you already have that, but, but doing it together, we can uh, just build those skills, grow in our ability to do that. So hopefully as we do that, we will actually walk through the, the major ideas here in Hebrews, and it will be useful as you understand, but also hopefully useful in how you read the Bible in general. Hebrews is one of the more difficult passages, so if you can make headway here, you'll turn back to the Apostle Paul and read that and realize that, man, you've, you've got a pretty good handle, because Hebrews is one of the more difficult books to read through and interpret because of the things that are going on in the book. So just to remind ourselves, um, when we start thinking about the context, uh, do you remember the big context for Hebrews? This is literally the same blanks as last time. So don't cheat, but uh, uh -uh. I've already cheated. <laughs> you already cheated, so then you can't answer. What is the, what is the big context for the book of Hebrews? Okay, that is that's the main point of the book of Hebrews. But technically, the context is the background, the setting, the why. What's what's going on historically speaking that caused this book to be written? Which type of Christians? Jewish Christians are getting persecuted by who? Jewish. Jews. So Jewish Christians are being persecuted by Jews to turn away from Christ. Now, why did we say that was so particularly difficult when it comes to persecution? It's from their own families. It's, it's parents persecuting children or children persecuting parents, cousins persecuting cousins, grandparents on grandchildren. And this is... Your own family, your own people persecuting you. So that's particularly difficult. Now, the little context. Y'all remember what we mean by the little context? So the big context is what's going on for the book. Little context is going to be... Chapter. The what's going on in the chapter? What's going on in the paragraph? What's going on in this train of thought? And so <laughs> you're going to summarize what Jesus... Or what we learned about Jesus in the first paragraph, 1 through 4... What would you say the main idea, or the main couple of ideas are? He's better than the angels. That's where we get. That's that's the, the conclusion. What's some of the He's at the theology. right hand of God. So he's at the right hand of God. So we know where he's sitting. He's been established to a high position, the highest position. Um, what else? We can say two specific things that haven't been said. Okay, so he is God. And then the converse of that is he is... Human. He's human. He is God and he is human. And he has received a better name than the angels. So that's that blank. Jesus has received a better name than the angels. Now what we're going to do, there's is a it, lot of blank on your paper. Is it here. also that he's finished the work of salvation? This is why he received a better name. Okay. Yes. Um, that's going to get more and more clear as we work forward. Um, that's the particular thing that he has achieved, done. And um, now we're going to explicitly compare him to angels. So the rest of chapter 1 is whoever wrote this book down is comparing Jesus to angels. So just right out of the gate, if we were going to brainstorm our, 
our own list of differences between Jesus and angels, what are some biblically grounded things you could say that makes Jesus different than an angel? He wasn't created. Okay, Son of God wasn't created. Those are kind of opposites. Because as the Son of God, he's always been the Son of God. Uh, wait, but you said wasn't created. Right, right. Those created. Are, okay, so they're the same. So wasn't created, Son of God. But is there any sense in which Jesus was created? He was humanity. Actually, he became created. a human being. He was created in that sense. He actually got made a little lower than the angels in that sense. But how's he different than the angels now? So they've never had that divine Son of God piece. That's unique to him. Right, so he's ruling as opposed to what angels do. They're messengers, they're servants. Right, so Jesus isn't a servant in that sense. He's the one sending. Do you say anything else? We can work with that. Right, so that's going to be a significant thing. And rather than compare Jesus to the angels in that regard, he's going to compare Jesus to Moses in the, on that particular topic because Moses offered the sacrificial system. All right, so now, I don't know what your Bible looks like, but the next part of the chapter, sorry, it's hard to hold two pieces. For me, it, it's like spaced out because it's quotations. Everybody's yeah. Bible look mm-hmm. similar to that? Yeah. Okay, why is it like that? Quoting it's quoting. So in all of these scenarios, we are quoting the Old Testament. Because when the New Testament quotes the Bible, um, it's only got one Bible to quote. And what Bible is that? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So it's quoting the Hebrew Bible. And a uh, nerdy side note, there's actually two Old Testaments during the time of Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's two different Old Testaments. They're very similar. But they're a little different. Those are different portions of the Old Testament. Two different languages. The Old Testament exists in two languages. You you know what one of them is. should be real obvious. Hebrew. (laughs) And then the other one is Greek. All right? What's interesting, this is super fascinating to me. Which one's original? Well, original, we would say Hebrew. Right? The, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Which one is the Word of God? So would you say the Greek is equally the Word of God to the Hebrew? <laughs> the, the answer's not as confident, but yes? Yes. Yes, everyone agree? So this is one of the cases where we can prove that. Because every now and then, the Greek version of the Old Testament... The wording's a little different than the Hebrew version. And if there was a discrepancy of any kind, um, you would want to choose the one that was more accurate, right? But the Bible doesn't seem to have a consistent pattern for which one it chooses. So there's one verse we're going to read here. If you go read in your Old Testament, which is translated from Hebrew, um, it does not read the same. Because the Hebrews is quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament, and your Old Testament is a translation of the Hebrew version. So, interesting side note. The, the two different ways would mean the same thing. Right? Similar. Sometimes the translations are dramatic. So, if you think about, like, the King James Version in the, um, when Jesus was born, the narrative when the angels come down and um, peace, goodwill towards men, and then you read my version, it would say, 
peace among those with whom God is well pleased. You know, it's like, well, it's the translation of the same phrasing. Um, one letter different and a textual variation causes that discrepancy. Um, but so sometimes that, I mean, I would say that's a significant change, but it's not like completely different messages. So in this case, it's a little different. And so he, he chose the Greek version, which I find interesting because he's writing two Hebrews. So, sorry. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to find the Old Testament reference for each of these. Okay? So, let me, let me help you cheat. Um, if you have a Bible with you at all, which I'm hoping you do. Oh, but some of you have digital Bibles. I wonder if that's better or worse in this regard. It's easier. Is it easier with your digital with Bible? With mine, I can just tap on the reference. Okay, so... <laughs> Well, I want you to learn how to do this and see this on your own. I have what's called a cross-reference Bible, which means I have a column down the middle with all these little notes in it. That's almost exclusively references to other verses in Scripture. When it's a quotation, it will give you the cited from, and it'll give you that spot. So, for example, our first quotation starts in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So where did he quote that from? Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2-7. Do you see that in your Bible, everybody? Okay. No, Mama, I have an NLT. Okay. Ask, I guarantee it's in there. I want you to know how to do this. Let me see. Yeah, it's on the Oh, okay, you're just... Yeah, chapter one. Oh, well, you know, I want to check on it. Verse 5. Okay, God never... Right there. 1-5. Okay, right here. Psalm 2-7. Okay. See that? Yes. There you go. So everybody see where their Bible gives that information? No, but it's okay. <laughs> you're just digital. I'm just going to blame it on being digital. Are you sure? I bet it's in there. Is there any kind of footnote? No, there's not. And I tried doing that, and there's... Oh, oh, U version does have it? No, that's U version. Oh, see, the U version is just all about you and it's not. Not the God version. Okay, so what I want us to do now is let's go read this verse in its Old Testament context. So, Psalm 2, it's verse 7, but let's not start in verse 7, at least for this one, so we can get an idea of how this works. I'm going to have a complaint. I'm, I'm going to launch a complaint. Against them? Against him. Oh, against Gene. Yes, he's a cheater. Cheater, cheater. Okay. Why do you think he's a cheater? What do you do? That's right. He's a cheater, cheater, baby. Okay. Psalm 2. Let's, we're going to be in verse 7, but let's, let's hold off. I want you to see the context of this particular song. It's a very important song. <coughs> so why do the nations rage... And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together <coughs> against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, who are the bad guys in the passage? Kings of the earth, so these other rulers. And what are they doing that's bad? Going against God. They're setting up a, a, a plan against specifically the Lord's what? Anointed. Anointed. 
Now, we know from a New Testament perspective, who is that? Well, technically it's Jesus. Yeah. But in the Old Testament, before that's clear, who is it talking about in the Old Testament? David. Who's the anointed? David. It's the king, right? So David would have been first, but it's the king. Whoever's king, you think about how did David become king? What did Samuel have to do? Had to anoint him. This is the idea. So Samuel was anointed king. Uh, verse 4, so he who sits in heaven laughs. Who's he laughing at? The people that think they're going to come against him. These people who think they've got something against the Lord's anointed. God's laughing at them. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy Heal. So clearly the anointed was a reference to the king and Zion. What holy hill is that? This is in Israel. It's in Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. It's, a, it's the city of David. This is the... the I, yes. But the idea is this is where God has put his king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten. Now, technically, who's that a reference to? Jesus. Ultimately, but in the, in, in the verse here, David. we say David, any descendant of David, whoever's sitting on the throne, the day they get anointed as king, we could say, you are my son, God says, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Bless all who take refuge in him. So technically, this is a psalm about the king of Israel. But ultimately, though, how did Hebrews start? Where is Jesus sitting? He's on the throne in heaven, at the right hand of God. And so when Hebrews quotes Psalm 2, um, he's explicitly saying it's a reference to who? Jesus. So today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, technically, what's the main point then of this quotation? Because if we only read it in Hebrews, it's like, well, he's he's the begotten son of God. But we actually mean something a little bit more specific than that here. Well, since Jesus and his deity wasn't created, that he's talking about Jesus and his humanity, he's begotten. Oh, so that's where the begotten side is. But begotten in what sense? What did Jesus do that made him begotten? And today you are my son. What's the idea? You, you were heading in the right direction, Gene. That he owns everything. What do you mean? That he's what? He's sovereign over By sitting on what? <laughs> what throne? God's. God's throne, which is also the Davidic throne. The, the throne that God promised to the Davidic king that someone would sit on forever, Jesus sits on that throne. You see, that's the point of this quotation. That that ever happened to an angel is what he's saying. 
There's any angel sitting on God's throne? Never. But now the son of David is. Jesus, the man, is. He's sitting on the throne. So the main idea is Jesus is the son of God. He is the Davidic king. Okay? And we won't go through all of them that intricately, but I do want you to see what's going on. The next one is also very significant. I want you to see it. So what's the next quotation from? It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Second Samuel 7. 14. So before you even get there, go ahead and turn. What's the context of 2 Samuel? What part of the history is that? Any guesses? All the 1 Samuel, Saul is king. 2 Samuel is David's reign. So it's going to be right near his ascension to the throne. Oop, I'm in first Samuel. Uh-oh. Second second Samuel. Samuel. Chapter seven. And we're gonna jump down to verse eight. And this is right after David wanted to build a house for the Lord. Do you remember that story? Mm-hmm. And God told him what? No. No, no. You're a man of bloodshed. You're not going to do it. But who's going to do it? His son. His son. son Solomon. But rather than ending there, God says, however, I'm going to build you a house. So this is that passage. So picking up in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. This is Nathan the prophet. Um, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, very literally, who are we talking about? It's the guy who's going to build the temple. Solomon. This is Solomon. And just to be more clear, let's finish verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Well, clearly that's a reference to who? Jesus. Was Jesus ever going to commit iniquity? This is... This is still Solomon. So technically, this whole passage is about Solomon. It sure sounds like a lot of stuff in here. Oh, certainly there. So what I want you to see is how the New Testament uses the Old Testament in reference to Jesus. So how does the author of Hebrews using this verse? 
Is he saying it's Solomon or is he saying it's Jesus? Oh, he's definitely saying it's Jesus. The other Hebrews is using this verse to talk about Jesus. But what we're saying is the original context of the verse, it's the literal son of David, Solomon. So think about that. How is the author of Hebrews, and this is consistent in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Jesus does the same sort of thing. How in the world can we apply this to Jesus when it's technically, literally about Solomon? Foreshadowing. There's another term for that. That's more religious. <laughs> typology. Okay. Anybody ever heard of typology? Okay. So the idea of typology is that God sets up these patterns, types, in the Old Testament to foreshadow what Jesus would be. David is a type. Adam is a type. So Jesus, that's why we say Jesus is the second Adam. He can be the new David. He can be the new Moses. He can be the new Elijah. He can be the new Israel. Anything in the Old Testament that Jesus embodies in the New Testament, that Old Testament idea would be the type. And now Jesus fulfills it. So really, you'll see the New Testament do this a lot. Anything a king of Israel does, there's a sense in which that can point to Christ in some way, especially the Davidic kings. So David is the Old Testament Christ figure. That's why it's important, like when we preach David and Goliath, you know, we have a tendency to make Goliath whatever your problem is, and you're David, and if you have faith like David, then you can overcome Goliath. But a better New Testament application of that would be Goliath's sin. Jesus is David, and you're the people of Israel trembling in their boots on the sideline, waiting to see what your Savior does. You see the difference? So the Old Testament's always pointing to what Christ would be later. You follow that? So we're referencing Solomon, but saying this is actually about Jesus. So anything about the kingdom, anything about the kings, anything about David or Solomon, in a sense, is ultimately going to be true about Jesus. That's the principle. So what's the main point of this particular quotation? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Why would the author of Hebrews use this idea here? Any ideas? Okay. So Jesus, I mean, yeah, so Jesus is the Son of God, but why use this verse? Because we really already established that in verse 1, or verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Because Solomon was given the position that he had because of who his father was. Ooh, that's not where I was going, but that's good. Okay? So, what do we call the covenant that happened in 2 Samuel 7, 14? Just all of chapter 7. It's the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is that God was going to do what? He was going to let a human being rule the world for all of eternity. But what human being? His son. The incarnate God human being. Now remember, what's the author of Hebrews comparing Jesus to at the moment? Angels, right? What was the whole idea? Where is man in relation to angels in the current paradigm? 
a little lower. But what's true about this anointed one of God? What is he? He's above. He's higher. And so this is not something that happens to angels. This is something that happened to a man, a specific man, Jesus Christ. So it's another specific way that Jesus is not like angels. And we even have a cult version of Christianity where Jesus is just an angel, right? Like that's the express point of Hebrews here is that Jesus is occupying a human position that is higher than angels. He sits on God's throne in heaven. So he's going to use these Old Testament Davidic covenant promises to prove that over and over and over again. All right. I know that one's more tricky. We get into typology on that one, but that is a common theme. You'll see that through In fact, all of these scriptures in some way are doing that sort of work. All right, now verse 6. This is the hardest one. It says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says... Now, before we go read the context on that one, when you just read that expression, when he brings the firstborn into the world, what in the world do you think he's talking about? Jesus. Jesus. In what sense? How is Jesus the firstborn? Of the resurrection. So he's explicitly called the firstborn of the resurrection. Um, what else could it be? It says when he brought the firstborn into the world, he says this. Well, when did he say this? Does anybody see the reference? What's the reference for that quotation? Let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy. Who's, who's basically always speaking in the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, Moses. Moses is basically just preaching. It's the second law. Like he got the law at Sinai, and then before he died, he's like, let me give you one more law. The second law, Deuteronomy. It's the word second in Latin and the word law. You put them together and you get Deuteronomy. The <laughs> second law. Um, so Moses is preaching. Well, what big event is Moses dealing with in God's redemptive history? <clears throat> the Exodus. <clears throat> so they, they've wandered in the wilderness. And is there any sense in which God has taken a firstborn at that moment? Oh. Uh, yes. What's, what's the sense? In the plagues. All right, in the plagues. So, so what happened in the plagues? Those who um, put the blood over their door frame, the angel passed over, mm-hmm. and the ones who did not. And the ones that were going to die were explicitly firstborn. firstborn. And so the whole concept of the Passover is that the Lord redeemed... His firstborn, Israel. He saved them. He took them from death. He passed over them and he made them his own. Technically speaking, when he brought the firstborn into the world, technically that's a reference to Israel in the Exodus. But we get common lingo. Now we don't get it in Hebrews, but we get it in the Gospels. It says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's always quoted after Jesus did what? His parents fled to Egypt, then he came out of Egypt and came back to Nazareth. But in the Old Testament, when that's quoted, who do you think it's talking about? God's people being his son, his firstborn son, being led out of Egypt. So the same way Jesus represents the Davidic king, Jesus represents Israel as a whole. So Israel came out of the prior, sorry, came out of Egypt, therefore Jesus would do the same. 
And so when that happened, let all God's angels worship him. Now in the verse, it's actually let all God's angels worship God. But how is the author of Hebrews referencing it? Let all God's angels worship the firstborn. Not Israel, but Jesus. Let them worship him. All right, let's keep going. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one because it's not about Jesus. It's about the angels. But where does it come from? Started from Psalm 104. All right, and but now instead of talking about Jesus, who are we talking about? The, literally the angels. So what do you think's going on with that verse? Well, what's he talking about? Yeah, yeah, they're attending to. They're, they're his, all the point of this version is they're messengers. They're his go-betweens. They're ministers. He sends stuff out. They do his bidding and come back. That's not the idea of what Jesus is. But of the Son, he says, and now in verse 8, we're going to quote from Psalm 45. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Well, what's the main idea of that quotation? You see the idea. Who do you think he's talking about in the Old Testament? You just read this one. You probably guess now. Your scepter is forever. You have rights of your kingdom. This is the king, again. But ultimately, what king are we talking about? Jesus is the king who, the only king who truly makes sense of this. Because it's his throne that's forever and ever. It's his scepter that upholds righteousness. It says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, this is where Jesus messes people up with this theology all the time. When he says, well, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your foot. Well, how could the Lord say to my Lord? Is that that confusing? How could the son of David be the Lord of David? It's the same idea. We see it right here. And how is it that the son of David can be the Lord of David? Because it's not just a human being that's descendant of David. It's God in the flesh who is a descendant of David. All right, same thing. So his his throne is eternal. And then um, in verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you Remain. They all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Well, what's the idea in that verse? It's eternal. All right, so this doesn't seem to have the human element at all. The other verses, there's a lot of... The king, you know, we even saw the king committing iniquity in the in the Samuel 7 passage. But in this one, it is, God is in his sovereignty. He's eternal. He's beyond everything. And who's, of course, who's he using this as a reference to? It's Jesus. So he's doing both things at the same time. Jesus is the eternal God. And then verse 13 says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, 
And this is the big one, and he's going to use this metaphor all over the book. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what's that a reference to? We're just guessing. Sovereignty? Um, yeah, so it's an application of sovereignty. Yeah, it's kind of the, the global direction. Things God has he's never not been sovereign. But we could say there is a sense in which he's, a sense, I have to be careful I'll say this, a sense in which he's not ruling everything. Um, he, he's ruling it from an umbrella perspective. Nothing's happening outside of his sovereignty. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's a sense in which his sovereignty in this kind of lingo is growing. It's happening progressively. Sin is being defeated. Death is being undone. And this is the explicit one Jesus always quotes. The Lord said to my Lord. That's how the psalm starts. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is literally out of the mouth of... Of David, And we'll come back and quote this verse and, and pieces of this psalm at different points in the book of Hebrews. This is where we get the, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That also comes from that um, same psalm, but that'll come in later. All right, so the idea there is God is growing the sovereignty of the Son. Well, do we grow the sovereignty of the angels? No, they're just servants. All right, so with all of that said, so how is Jesus better than the angels? The two obvious answers are the two blanks there. Are they blank or the yeah. fill them in? Okay. He's the divine, two different things. What do you think? King. Divine king and the divine son. Son, exactly. There's no sense in which we can say that of the angels. We can call angels sons of God, but we do not mean divine. Be completely different lingo. Jesus is literally the son of God and he is also the divine king. Well, what's another way we could say Jesus is better than the angels? This one's open-ended. What do y'all think? What do you think? He's God. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty significant, I would say. I'd say that's kind of connected in with the divine son, though. Oh, that's definitely true. What do you think? He he understands humanity better because he's human. I mean, really, he's going to argue not... He's going to be away from angels by the time he gets to there, but he's going to argue that the Son has that unique perspective. He can relate to us in sin and temptation and sorrow and pain, literally because he's had those things. Angels don't have that. They don't have our perspective. That's excellent. That's a good point, yeah. He conquered death. Yes. Angels don't conquer death. Conquer death? Like Absolutely. That's a great answer. Did I die? That's a really good question. He's incapable of sinning. I mean, Ooh. I don't know that the angels sinned. But yeah, that's a complicated because we know there are angels who sinned, but like, we don't know much about that. 
kids were asking about that the other day. I was like, I really don't know. Yeah, the biblical <laughs> answer is that it happened. But can they? Because they were asking me, like, can angels sin? And I was like, well, they have. But I don't know. But because he has a unique relationship with the Father. Absolutely. Unique relationship with the Father. He's, he's special. Of course, the, the main theme of Hebrews, of course, is Jesus is just better. He's just got to better everything. Um, one really simple way of saying this, and the way he's going to set this argument up, is Jesus is just more important than they are. Categorically, he's a bigger deal. So if an angel said something and you paid attention, what should you say if the son says something? <laughs> Which is where he's, and we won't go over it right now, but that's what the first paragraph of chapter 2 is. Is that for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how about the Old Testament? How much shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, well, why? Who's given us the salvation we have? Christ. The Christ. The Son has. Well, apply that back to the context. Who's persecuting who? Jesus. Jews persecuting Christian Jews. And specifically, they want them to do what? Renounce Christ. Renounce Christ. Go back to just the Old Testament portion. So what's the author of Hebrews doing here mentally to try to coerce them against that notion? Old Testament, he would say, that's angel. Angels gave us the Old Testament. Who gave us the New Testament? Jesus did. Well, did anything in the Old Testament, did that prove to be valid? Well, if you're a Jew, then there's no question about it. Of course it did. Yes, did people get punished for disobeying what Moses gave them? Yeah, people died in the wilderness. A whole generation died in the wilderness. People died by plow. All sorts of things happened at the coming of that covenant. That was just by angels. You take the Son of God, and He makes a covenant. Do you think there's going to be a difference between those two covenants? Mm-hmm. I mean, to what degree? It'd be everything, wouldn't it? And that's the point of the Book of Hebrews: is you could never go back to the Old Testament once you've had the New. This is a one-way trip. You meet Jesus, you see what He offers. The Old Testament doesn't offer that. It's just not there. Because one, from angels, and this is the Hebrews way of expressing it, two, the New Testament is from the Son himself. Okay, so let's end this way. I always want to do this. How can we make gospel application to our lives, to our thinking, based on what we've read tonight? Many of these verses stand out to you as, man, that's, that's useful for my walk. So we've said gospel application is going to apply to our sinfulness, the need of a Savior, the sufficiency of that Savior to bring life transformation towards his ultimate reconciliation of the world. How does it apply to any of that? Can you see anything? We've established that he's the Son of God, so he's our creator. Okay. So he's a sufficient Savior. It shows how grand the plan is. It's not just like this, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I'll save these folks. But it's, I mean, this is literally before time began. He's got this plan that he set up these Old Testament principles that he would fulfill in Christ. To me, that's just glorious to see 
God is doing that much work to redeem us, that's huge to me. And that Christ was willing to humble himself to become... Uh, see, that human. should never get old. It's that the, the, the expression and the word became flesh, John 1.14. I should blow us out of the water every time. When you think about how God, God is, and how restrictive it must have felt to be human after that, can you imagine? I mean, we can't, really. <clears throat> That's humbling. Anything else? I probably love verse 13 most out of all of those. I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, from reading Paul, what's the last enemy? Death. Death. Death will be defeated. Fully, finally, faithfully. And that's <laughs> angels don't do that. This is the Son of God doing a work for us. You know, you read a passage like this, I always get frustrated with the people who obsess about angels. Like the largest passage in scripture telling us about angels is telling us how little they are, how insignificant they are next to Jesus. Well, and that salvation is not for the angels. Ooh. They're ministering spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Ooh. Yeah, we need to read that verse. My bad. Right. Jesus is Completely. So he's, he's not even, even the angels who from our vantage point would be considered holy. They're not even in this category when it comes to holiness. He's got his own category beyond them. Do what? In the category of creation. Yes. Very good. All right. 727. That's not too bad for covering nine verses instead of two. I did actually. Well, this one is just—it makes the same point over and over and over again. So, but it'll get good. It'll really be good next week too. I love that first paragraph there in chapter two. Oh, wouldn't it get so much nerdier from this point forward? I never knew. As long as I've been in church, I never knew. See, and that's how useful this is to to learn little side notes like that. There you go. Thanks. You study your Bible me, better. Yeah, so now you you can study your Bible better. That makes yeah. the night worth it. Good deal. This whole first chapter is just intimidating because, I mean, the first thing you got to do is like, oh, God, i got to jump in all these, figure out what all this means. And you're like, oh, I'll just try something. Well, do remember he's writing to Jewish people who didn't have to look up those references because you just quote them and they're like, yeah, 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 that story, yeah. Yeah, that's Psalm, yeah. It's like if I said... You know, um, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Really? You thought of the whole song. Well, and so I don't have to go give you context for that. Same same thing for them. Those psalms are just, I know them by heart. They sung them. They loved them. They memorized them. So, But anyway, let me uh, close this in prayer, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you'd bless our study of your word. I pray that we would see Christ elevated to his rightful position in our minds and our souls. Uh, we know that he sits at the right hand of you, ruling and reigning. But, God, I pray that we would acknowledge that sovereignty in our decisions and our worldview and our um, the direction we're going in life. God, I pray that we would live for his glory. 
uh, obedient to his commands and help us to be sustained, sustained and satisfied with the greatness and glory of Christ in our daily lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a good evening and let's not tear down.